This is Jan Cox, talk number 2583, recorded September 25th, 2000. Okay, I read. I wrote something I'm going to read. It's entitled, More About Thoughts Lack of Materiality. I tried to write it down. It's something, same thing I have been talking about that I think lends itself, to say the least, most readily to extemporaneous palaver. I beg your pardon. At least I didn't say screed. At any rate, let me read, and I'll go with it since I wrote it. If men clearly realize the insubstantiality of thought, there would be no neuroses. What you're going to find out is over the weekend, since I brought this up to you again, which I'm delighted I have, because since I had to leave before most of you Saturday night, I had fun all throughout the weekend, now that I've started on this again, of just playing with this, so to speak. So I just picked out a couple of examples again having to do with the fact that if you can see it in a very particular way, thoughts really have no substance, not just theoretically. It is it's why I keep going or I'm going on for a third night. I'm trying to beat it on to you. It is more than I can say. It's easy enough to say, oh, there's nothing to thought. And everyone can go, oh, yeah, of course, that's your thoughts doing it. I don't know when you're going to catch on. And you think, well, I have called on. No, you haven't, or you wouldn't have said that. <laughs> anyway, so this is one example. I wrote down a couple here. So I just want you to understand, I get going, this is just one example. I'm saying that if men clearly understood, they realized the insubstantiality of thought, there would be, for instance, no such things as neuroses. Well, one thing, I picked out neuroses, it struck me, because that is considered, especially in our day and time, is considered to be, or would be considered to be, one of the strongest arguments for the fact that there is materiality to thought. The fact that, that someone could, if they were listening to this, an ordinary educated person, could bring up the idea of neuroses or psychoses, but of mental problems as being... Uh, prima facie proof that I am incorrect, that thoughts do have, quote, substantiality, materiality, so much so, in fact, that they can make a man ill. Of course, it's not the thoughts, it's the experiences, but they end up going through the mind, and we call it mental illness, and et cetera. But consider, if, for instance, a particular man's neuroses has been diagnosed as being caused by his mother's mistreatment of him in childhood, and the man would presently look at the thoughts in his head that are the sole support of the neuroses and would ask himself, quote, right this very moment, as I am recalling my unfavorable memory of my mother, what exactly at this moment is actually going on? What is happening right this second? What the hell are you going to make me say anything else? That's it. I wrote more. That's it. We all know. You don't have to be under professional care. 
You don't have to feel like that you have a neuroses, but everyone has episodes, I'm sure, in your life that your memory is such that they present a form of torment, extreme displeasure. But you know what I, or what is meant even in clinical terms of neuroses. And you know how common it is for, well, not common, it is the norm. I don't know what else would be that there is some experience in a man's life or some combination of experiences. Like in this case, maybe not just one episode of his mother mistreating him. Still a problem? No. No. I thought that was your criticism. <laughs> that uh, even if it was not some single episode that uh, perhaps a psychiatrist would, after a certain length of time, uh, present to a man the fact, if he didn't already think so himself, that the reason that he is now in such mental torment, the reason that he is so mentally disturbed, unbalanced, distressed, is because of perhaps a continuing history of his mother's mistreatment. She neglected him, beat him, didn't give him any love, and blah, blah. We all know how it goes. You're so used to hearing it, as a matter of fact. Who among you, however you would go about it, I'll leave it to you, but who among you has even ever questioned your thoughts, reaction to hearing such stories? You may not be interested any longer in listening to them in detail, but when you hear someone start on, you know, well, I've been under, I'm having to take medication, or whatever the story, and they get going about it. You know, my mother uh, was on, she was a cokehead. My mother was an alcoholic. I, I had the worst childhood. I guess I should be surprised I'm in the shape, I'm as good a shape as I am. But, uh, I mean, she just treated me terribly. And we're so used to hearing it. Again, I say you may not be interested any longer than staying around and taking in the details. But tell me I'm not correct. That your thoughts, hearing that, do not repel, do not resist the reality of that. Any more than you might hear a weather report for Montana, you may not be interested in it, but you hear it on the newscast or the radio, and you do not stop and go, good God, why do they even bother with weather forecasts? Over 90% of the time, they're incorrect within a 12-hour period. What good do they do? That may be, if you stopped and thought about it, that might be your analysis of it. And if you stopped and thought about someone when they began to talk about the damage, the continuing damage, that right now their life is much less than just the norm, that their life really is a form of continuing misery due to one thing, their mother's mistreatment when they were growing up. You do not stop. As I said, I challenge you, I look to you, you do not stop and think or even analyze that. You do not question it. We take it as some sort of statement of fact. It is some fair representation of reality. What I'm trying to get you to see when I drop the paper, I mean, that's the way I, I first saw it. It's the only thing I can tell you is when I went through the theatrics of like, well, hey, that's it. So we know. Now let's take it from somebody else to yourself. And there's got to be something in all of your lives, something in general. Maybe you didn't like the way your mother treated you. Maybe you didn't like the way you were treated in high school. Maybe you were considered to be a nerd or a geek or you were picked on. Maybe that whole episode of high school is just a nightmare to you. That you can hear someone's name mentioned from your high school days that you hadn't seen 
in 30 years. And you were back having what would amount to, probably, if a psychiatrist was there, they would probably classify it as a neurosis. Of course, they're inclined to classify almost anything as neurosis if you'll show up and have enough money for a visit. But, hey, that's why you're a professional. Amateurs say, well, I don't know. You seem all right to me. And they would have lost a consulting fee. See? That's why you have law school and postgraduate work in psychiatry. So that you can listen to whatever it is that people, whatever they present as being a potential problem, and you'll be able to immediately identify it as, yes, it's a good thing you came to me, because that indeed is a problem needing a professional help. That'll be $100, please. At any rate, let us say that there is something in your life that you can think of. Just, if not, as I said, if not a specific episode, just, I hated high school. But I had a first marriage. I had a long love affair with some man or some woman. And it just ended up so badly that I think about her or him all the time in the way that he or her treated me. Whatever it is. At the time you're suffering over that, that it comes up, it comes to your memory. Nothing could be more real. Now, you know that and I know that. Nothing could be more real. It can take your appetite away. That's how strong it can be. And in one sense, we all know how strong appetite is. It can kill your sexual desire. You can be sexually aroused. Uh, I'm sure it must be something similar to women, but you can be sexually excited, and suddenly some woman, maybe you just picked her up and just climbed in bed for the first time, and maybe some way it just comes up while you're undressing or something. You're ready to go, and it comes out that she went to high school, the same place you did, four or five years behind you, and she happens to mention, well, you don't know? I used to go with, and she mentioned some guy that was your nemesis that used to pick on you and put you know, peanut butter in your jock strap. And suddenly, the memory of that, your own self-style neuroses can override sex. You suddenly lose interest. You can't even perform. Or as I said, the same thing could be happening where you sit down to a meal and you suddenly look out the window of a restaurant and see somebody or somebody bring up your mother. The point is, there is no doubt that these neuroses are as real at the moment as they can be, except for this. And I don't know how so I've told you already. I've stopped reading and gone into my extemporaneous exposition on my own writings, but I've already told you. Everything I'm doing now, I'm backing up, and I'm putting fat back where it doesn't belong, because I told you what it is. Well, I don't mean everybody had to get it, because it took me almost a lifetime to see it this way. Well, a long time. That there you are, that there you sit, we're not making fun of it, we're not questioning. There you sit, or the other guy, the, my fictitious man with his neuroses, based upon his mother's mistreatment. Now you understand in my made-up example here, I'm not saying that the man imagined it. Let's say that his mother was an absolute drunk, neglected him, pushed him downstairs, did all kinds of things. Was a rotten mother. So here he is, he's 30 years old, 40 years old, he's a grown man, and he has not only this horrible continuing memory of his childhood and his mother, but now he even has a professional who's agreed. That, yeah, that, there's the cause of it, there's no doubt. So at any rate, there he sits or stands, or there you stand or sit at the moment, and the memory of this thing is upon you. And I'm not questioning that somebody in high school just made your life hell if it wasn't your mother's mistreatment. But there you are in the memory of it, and it's taking your appetite away. You're beginning to feel nauseous. You're getting a headache. Just, there it is again. That's, that's a neurosis. 
Damn near a psychosis. Now that I start, or psychosis. Now that I start describing it. Except for this. At that moment, what in the hell is going on? Nothing. We treat a neurosis as a name as though it is something. Or you treat a bad memory. You treat my mistreatment in high school as though it is something. I'm going to say it again. It's not there. There's nothing there. I can say it in a way that's even, I'm afraid, stranger than this. Or it sound stranger. To me, I don't know how I've never tried to say this to you, but I've started to several times. I'm just going to say it. To me, not in theory, but to me now, what I understand the way that it is with me, something like that now, or the whole past, did not exist. It didn't happen. Now, you know damn well I'm not saying that, you know, whatever happened, happened. But insofar as people's ordinary state of mind, it did not happen. It happened. But after that, there is nothing else. There is no neuroses other than a person's recollection of this bad event. It's bad memories. Now, I know you might sit there and say, well, Jesus, that's obvious as hell. No, it's not. Of course, that's, I assume it's why you people show up. I always assume it is at the moment I can do things like this. Or if you follow it and you can go or maybe see it in a certain way. But other than sitting here right now, I assure you, and you must know it, that is not the way you look at it. That is not the way you think about it. That something is upon you. It's normally the past. It could be something upcoming that you're dreading, but it's based upon the past. That you've already got past memories of how this can be painful or upsetting. But at the moment you're sitting there in misery, there's nothing miserable going on. There's nothing going on. You're having a memory. You're having a thought. And if you weren't having that thought, you could be having a real happy thought. And then you wouldn't be neurotic. Aha. Uh -huh. That's why I don't give up. Let me continue reading. Since I... Let us say... Let me go back and read this part again. Let us say that we have a man... And he's accepted the fact. And as I said, it's true. His mother mistreated him. A rotten mother, terrible childhood. And he, that's been diagnosed and he accepts that is the cause of my neurosis. That's the cause of my, my main torment in life. But I'm saying that if that man would stop right at this second and simply look at the thoughts in his head that are the sole support of the neurosis, See, to me, that's key that people won't see. I picked the words carefully. The soul support. That's the only thing holding up your neurosis is the thoughts about it. But ordinary people see, ordinary minds will not take that. And, it, and I assume that's hard or difficult because based upon how long it took me to see it, for you to sit there and really absorb it instantly yourself. Because if you tell somebody... The sole support of your neuroses, the sole support of your misery, is the thought you're having right this second about this long-gone event or series of events. If a person would even bother to answer that, an ordinary rational mind, what would it say? It would say something like, well, you're wrong. What supports it is 20 fucking years of my 
so-called mother's mistreatment of me. Do you want me to start detailing how many bones she broke and how many times she left me in dangerous? That's what supports it. By God, that's a damn good argument. <laughs> if, you're, well, if you're a moron, I guess. <laughs> the sole support of the neuroses is the thoughts you're having at this moment. I don't care what happened. I don't care when it happened. I don't care how extended it was. I don't care how poignant it was. I don't care how real it was at the time. I don't care how physical it was at the time. The only, the sole support of the neuroses is the thoughts you're having at this moment. There is no other support. There is nothing to it except that. You take that away and you're not neurotic. You take that away and you've got no problem. So I say for the man, even with that kind of background, if he would stop and look at the thoughts in his head that are the sole support of the neuroses, and he would ask himself, quote, right this very moment, as I am standing here recalling my unfavorable memory of my mother, which is my psychosis, then if he would ask himself, what exactly at this very moment is actually going on to support it? Then I answered it, nothing. Nothing is going on but his thoughts. His mother is dead, and so she is not physically present mistreating him. He and undergoing no torment of any, and he and he is not under and he is undergoing no torment of any kind other than the thoughts regarding the torment. Once you realize that all thoughts are without substance and are no more than theatrical flats. Collectively, they are a Potemkin village possessing no mass or materiality. Then, if you can do that, you see that there really is nowhere to put a neurosis or any other type of daydream. I mentioned before, everybody knows what a theatrical flat. It's just simple, that piece of music that they used to use in vaudeville or the opera. It's just a piece of canvas, and it's painted up to look like a rock. It was painted up to look like an automobile. And everybody, it's just a flat. It's just a wooden frame with a canvas and the things painted on it. To me, individual, that's at best what a thought is. And then I went ahead and added collectively. I assume everybody knows what a Potemkin village, the general that has several stories. Back in the 1700s, under Catherine the Great's great favorites, let's say. <clears throat> the one of the stories is that Reports are already coming back to the Russian royalty of how upset and restless the people were becoming over their sorry state. And finally, she asked, is that true? And he said, on the contrary. He said, I'll take you out for a ride tomorrow. We'll just surprise a little village. And so he had his men rush out and go down <laughs> this village. It was nothing but a bunch of slums and hovels. And they did what a man do, a complete town made out of theatrical flats that they made these you know false fronts and they just stuck them up over the slums of all these nice houses and two and three story and made people get up on ladders some of the soldiers and dress up with wigs like women and happy people and so then he rode along with Catherine the Great the next day and all the people waved and hollering hail to Catherine you know, long live the queen the czarist 
That's a Potemkin village. Collectively. That is what is going on with what I usually refer to as the collective secondary world of thought with people. They all support each other. It's all a pretense. Let me go and I did another example. Also, this is a good one, and we're so used to it. See if I'm not correct. You never notice it. Never, you have never analyzed it. You have never thought about it. After a tragedy, a man will say, quote, I have learned so much from this experience. And his demeanor and the tone of his voice seems to convey a sense that this learning that they say they have gained has some sort of weight, girth, volume, and materiality, and that it has actually added substance to them. Right, you can see this all, uh, well, I was going to say you see it on TV, you can hear it with people, but it's in television, all kinds of shows, from the news to everything else, it's, well, you know how common it is. They'll ask somebody, all the way from a tragedy that seemed to have befallen them to some tragedy that seemed to have been self-inflicted. They'll ask somebody, how does it feel? Uh, your wife and family went out to buy your birthday present last night and got hit by a drunk driver and all of them are dead. Maybe it was a week ago and they interviewed the person. Or maybe it's some man who was the head of a large brokerage firm, well-respected, and it turns out he'd been running a scam and now he's in prison for 10 years. Total disgrace. A year ago before this happened, he had the world by the tail. And there he sits. Anyway, they can interview both both people. The, the survival of the family. A car crash. And so how does it feel? You've had now months and your whole family wiped out. And it was your birthday. You know what? You know that kind of story. And the person will look right in the camera. And I, well, you know, I'm not making fun of it. And the person will go, well, of course, it, it's something like that. First, you think, oh, I can't live through it. I, and my life is over. And then, of course, you do live through it. But, And then they will take, there's a tone of voice. You all have heard it. You just don't think about it. And a look on people's face. And it's suddenly as though, they, it could just be a nobody. The guy is just, he's a you know a bricklayer. He could be unemployed. He's just a nobody. And yet there's almost a semi-divine aura comes over people. They say, I, I was going to, I was ready to kill myself. I mean, like my wife and my three beautiful daughters, I thought, what's the use in living? But then you know, I have learned so much from that, that horrible experience. And it's almost, you can look there, and it's almost as though they went from being a flat, like just a drawing, a painting, that it's like suddenly they took on this depth. Almost instant wisdom. Gravitas, as they, Greeks or Romans used to call it. This man says, but now. And his face will change, his tone. Would just suddenly he say, I have learned such a lesson from this. Nobody ever says a word. And on the other hand, you can take the man there. They interview him in prison. He's been there a year or so and somebody... Hard up for Newsday, and they go to that guy. And so how does it feel? Here you sit, and now you're a number. Now you're mopping floors. One year ago, you were worth $2 billion. 
and now the courts, the FEC, they have stripped everything from you, and here you sit in jail. Your family, your wife divorced you. My God, what do you have to say to people? And this guy, it's not, not important, the, the look and the demeanor is slightly different, but you know you've heard this before, and the man will say, well, you know, it's horrible. I can't excuse it. I, I don't know what to tell you. You're right. I don't have anything. I worked all my life. I worked 20 years to get where I was. It was all taken away by my own stupidity, my own greed. It's gone, and here I sit. But you know what? God, have I learned a lesson. You have no idea what this has taught me. I, taking away all any potential sarcasm, which I'll give you so much credit that you wouldn't do that. Or cynicism. What I'm saying is looking, you and everyone else, the collective, that kind of pretense game, as I say. I got another good one having to do with that. I probably won't get into tonight, connected to the same thing. But the great gigantic make-believe game, is it, am I not correct, without you analyzing it, you, not use you just as a typical non-awake-at-the-moment listener. You're listening to this person being interviewed, watching on TV, just staring at it, and you're listening. You never think to analyze it, I mean, in any manner. And if you did, if I gave any suggestion, am I not correct that you and other reasonable people, if I said, is he faking it? they go, well, no, 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 no. No, go, look, look, look at him, listen to the tone of, no. I mean, it's horrible it happened to him, but he really has. There's no doubt. He has learned, and if they don't use these words, what they're saying is almost as though there has been a, an additional spiritual dimension of some kind has been added to the man. Now, I've even heard it explained that when God uh, will let something horrible or is testing a man, and such as his family being killed in a horrible accident all in one swoop, that what it does is offer the man the chance to deepen his own appreciation of the sanctity of life and for him to appreciate the love of a family and that kind of thing. It just all seems so real. It seems so human. I'm just going to say it. Where is this learning? What is it that he learned? Now, you know damn well if I said that, or if anybody said that, to the guy that lost his family or to the guy in jail, he would immediately have an answer and it would probably be not all that polite. To say the least, he would probably pretend or appear to take serious umbrage. How can you say that? Let me read the rest of it. Let me reread it again. After a tragedy, a man will say, I have learned so much from this terrible experience. And their demeanor and tone of voice seems to convey a sense that this learning that they say they have gained has, in some way, actually added something to them. Something. When they say, I have learned something, nobody analyzes it. But am I not correct? If people had to answer the question, they would say, it has. And, of course, they were ordinary sane people. They would have to say it was something on the nature of a spiritual depth has been added to them, some new di dimension to their wisdom, to their spiritual understanding of life, that this tragedy, 
this wound on this man of losing his family or losing his career and being put in jail, but of losing his family, this tragedy in some way has stopped some kind of new understanding. or It has added a depth, a weight to him that was not there previously. He admitted himself. He was just kind of happy-go-lucky and was prone to stop out at after work and have beers with the boys. And he didn't spend enough time on the weekend with his little baby girls. But now that they're gone, they got tears, you know, swelling his eyes. And he says, what I have learned from this, what I have learned from this, as, as horrible as it was, as unbearable as I thought it was, what I have learned from this is just, it's just unbelievable. Back to my reading. The learning that they say they have gained strikes people. The person that says it and people who hear it, it strikes them as though this learning is actually something. It's actually a something. And it has added something actually to the person. Back to my reading. I say nothing of the sort has occurred. All they're doing is having thoughts about the tragic event. Where is this something they say they have learned? Where is it? What is it physically? Because i got to tell you again, that's kind of... When I see things in a certain way like this, that's as simple as I get it, is where is it? I don't know. After that, I'm just bullshitting you people. Where is it? Except every time I say that, I assume. It's my impression that that doesn't strike anybody else. No offense to you, but it, it seems to be just singular with me that that's all I need. That's my only sort of question. Where is it? Of course, the answer is always the same thing. It's in your thoughts. There is no is it after that. It is nothing but thoughts and words. That is all the learning that they mentioned. That is all the learning ever was. What can come from thoughts but more thoughts? I'll try it again. When I say that things didn't happen, is my view. By my view, I assume you understand I mean more than some kind of metaphorical mental model. My view is this, if it was me. My view of life, my understanding of life, the tragedy that took this man's wife and little children did not happen. It happened. But after the event, it didn't happen. After that, there is no event. I mean, his wife's dead. The children are gone. He's heartbroken. He cries about it. He talks about it all the time. But the event now does not exist. No event exists after it ceases to exist. Which I was hinting to you as we're touching on Saturday. Is I see that as part of the use of what is easily attacked as being redundant recollections of the past and people continuing to talk about the past. Not just tragedies. It's usually bad news, even if it's self-effacing bad recollections. But why are people so? Why is that so much of the human conversation is recollections of the past? Oh, you remember when we did so-and-so? You remember such-and-such? Well, let me tell you what happened to me one time. I can see such a beautiful arrangement, such a beautiful act in a sense of the of a ghost that doesn't exist and it puts on imaginary weight 
volume and mass for the moment as it refers to itself. God, let me tell you, again, I repeat, it doesn't have to be just a tragedy. People saying, oh, that reminds me. <laughs> let me tell you, one time, I don't I think I was in Little Rock. Maybe it's Hot Springs. Anyway, and I just stopped in this bar. I just got in town, and I met this girl. She was a knockout. And I didn't know she was with anybody. And the story goes on and on and on. People stand there and listen until it's their time to tell a story. What's the point of that story? Well, once you get past, well, he's just being, he's just being, making conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why do people tell stories? Why does he remember that? Of course, that one you could say, well, people like to remember pleasant times. All right. You're going to pull that shit on me. Then, then why is what, what most of the people remember? Unpleasant times. People don't care. As long as they're recalling. As long as they be remembering. That's all they want. Why? I say that by talking about the past, it's a moment. It gives thought. What you want to call it? An illusion? A sensation? It's damn near a reality, at least to the mind. It gives thought. Substance. It gives it gravitas. See, because the person is saying, well, let me tell you when I was that time in Hot Springs. Let me tell you what happened. Right, he, it sounds as though he's talking about himself physically, and he may be. He may start talking about sex, or he may start talking about a fight. Suddenly her boyfriend showed up. So he tells you about the big fight and how he got his nose broken and blah, blah, blah. All right. It seems as though he is talking about something that physically occurred, right? But I'm saying it didn't. That's not what he's talking about. Once that event was over, that moment, I tell you again, that's just the way I look at it. It does not, it doesn't exist. It never happened. What he's doing now is just it's a thought world. It actually has nothing to do with the event. It's just an excuse for thought to play like, let me tell you what happened to me. But thoughts can't say that. So let's tell, let's, let's tell what happened to our body. Let's, what, let's tell what happened to our feelings. Physically, my family got killed, and now I'm, I feel horrible. Of course, I always notice I pointed this out before, and normally I'm afraid that every time I mention it, that thus far people just laugh somewhat in a cynical manner. But if you want to see what I'm talking about, I'll try it again. Maybe this is time to flip back out. They're interviewing the man whose family a week ago Wiped out his wife, his three little girls on the way home from Walmart buying his birthday present. They interview the guy, a lengthy segment. What does the guy talk about? How horrible this has been on him. And nobody ever notices. And I can be theatrical, sarcastic for a minute and go, does anybody listening to the reporter or somebody? He's going, they, the reporter, of course, sets it up. Here's Mr. So-and-so. Of course, maybe it's a voiceover before they even turn the mic. But they set up that here's so-and-so, 22-year-old bricklayer, Aniston, Alabama, a week ago on his birthday. They were going to try to surprise him. His wife said she had to run to the store, took the three little daughters, and they drive out, blah, blah, blah. On the way back, a drunk driver hits them. They're all killed. And he has been, uh, in fact, some of his friends had to step with him the first week. They were afraid he was going to commit suicide. It's been... Anyway, so he agreed to talk to us. Now it's been about a week. And so then they turn the mic and there they sit in this trailer or wherever. And they say, you know, hello, we appreciate you sharing this with us. That has got to be an unbelievable event to happen in a man's life. 
And of course, you've just heard. And it is. It's horrible. And so they, the reporter has already set it up with a voiceover. And now they live with him going, that has just, it's unthinkable. How can so? We just don't know what to say. Tell us, man, what can you add? So here it is. And he may start and he go, well, I thought I'd die. I didn't think I could survive it. You don't know the pain this has been to me. You don't, you have no idea. If something like this has not happened to you, you can't imagine. You can hear about it, but you cannot imagine the pain this causes. Not only my dear wife. She was my whole life. Now, if it just been her killed or murdered or raped or something, uh, I wouldn't have known. I don't think I could have lived. But then I had these three children. You ever had children? If you never had your children killed, not one, I don't know how I could. Nobody ever says, sir. I mean, you said that this has been real hard on you, but goddamn, they're dead. Nobody ever. You never notice that. They do it constantly. They'll ask your mother, how's it feel? Your son was suddenly killed during a tackle at the high school football game. And she goes, I don't know how I'm going to live. You, you have no idea the pain I have been through since, since that event. Or maybe not just murdered or killed. How about they've been paralyzed? From the neck down, from the nose down. And there he lays in the background in bed like this. And she's going, I don't, you don't know the pain. You don't know the suffering for this to happen to your own son. And she walked right in front of him in front of the camera. You have, I have not been able to sleep. I've lost 10 pounds since. And you think, he's over there and can't move. And nobody ever notices. Not being sarcastic. I'm trying to get you to see what's going on. What's going on? It, from my view, what I'm trying to get you to see in yourself, what's going on really has nothing to do with the son laying there, a quadriplegic. What was going on in the interview, and the guy, t it has nothing to do with the accident. It has nothing to do with the tragedy and his wife and family and everybody dead. And there's no way that you can get thoughts to see that, ordinary thoughts. But I'm telling you, that is what being asleep is, is not being able to realize that. In fact, the last part I wrote, being really, really, real large letters, fast asleep, end quote, is to have your thoughts so entangled and so engrossed in themselves that they do seem to take on palpable, palpable reality. But it is simply an illusion that thoughts perpetrate on themselves. Wake up and realize it. Just look over your shoulder and it can't be missed. Sometimes I leave here and I can't believe. I can still hear myself and I can't believe that I've been saying, <laughs> doing just in there. Well, you know, that's not the way I've learned it. If you don't know the truth, I don't sit home that to me. I just sit there and the I'd just be sitting there in a the chair or driving along or walking along. It's nice and quiet. I mean, it'll make me smile. But I just simply see, in which I did years ago, there's nothing to thoughts. I thought, well, I can't say that. I mean, I knew I could say it, but, you know, if I've just seen it, you know, of course, I realize there's more to see it, because anytime I've just seen something, there's, there's some more depth to it. And of course, this one, what was great was, there was even less depth to it. But, <laughs> but it took me a long time. It took me a long time to whittle it down. Everything, that's all being asleep is. Well, that's my 
I'm not going to say definition or description for the night or the year or until further notice, but that's all being asleep is. It's thoughts not realizing. It does no good to say that they don't exist because you're having a thought even when, if I say thoughts don't exist and you have a thought, no matter what it's like, well, if you say so, I'll try to study it. Or even if your mind goes, that can't be literally true. Then, of course, it is. You are correct, literally, that it can't be true, literally, if there are no thoughts because you can hear it. And ponder my statement. And it's your thoughts doing it. When I say you ponder it, it's your thoughts ponder it. There is nothing else. I, say, I give a thought out. I say, thoughts do not exist. All you can do is, no matter what you call it, I ponder it, I'll consider it, I reject it, I find some favor with it. All you're doing is having a thought about my thought. So just simply saying that thoughts don't exist, I try to shy away from it every now I do it. I just throw at the end of my tether and just make a dramatic shot at it, theatrical shot, that they don't exist. But I can see, I know damn well you sit there, and if unless you're in some extraordinary condition of perception at the moment, your thought, it just goes right from me. It's like from one vacuum cleaner, you know, that if you listen to me, your mind has got sucked into that one thought. I say, thoughts don't exist. You go, hmm. Then you just throw your mind into a vacuum cleaner. Like, I'll consider it. Well, there's nothing to consider. If I'm correct and they don't exist, what are you considering? Plus, what are you considering it with? But the point is, there is something to consider it with. And so, that's why there is a lack of full efficacy in the idea. There's a lack of true, of true accuracy. Because they do exist, obviously. But I'm, there's... See, I can't say that they're lacking totally in materiality. But that's about the best words I know to come up with. I tried to give you some picturization of it. I see it as being, they're paper thin. They're there. And when I say paper thin, to me it's more than allegory. I, had to, I came up with that just to try and describe something to you. I don't go around thinking about them paper thin. I have, I can feel it. I mean, I know what's there by now. It's almost like a smoke screen. It's almost like a hologram. It's there. But literally behind it, supporting it, is nothing. I ask you again, where did they come from? All the thoughts you have, good, bad, indifferent, the ones you agree with, the ones you, where did they come from? Can you remember where you got them? The day that you adopted that one. The day you worked it out. The day that you said, I'll, I'll take that one. I'll steal that one. I'll adopt that one. Or perhaps you sit around and you weave together some words. You're sitting at home. You thought, I need some new ideas. Maybe you just wrote down words out of a dictionary on slips of paper and you pull them out and put them together until it makes some sort of sentence. You go, ah, there's a new idea. There is nothing behind them. Nothing that the mind or nothing that thoughts themselves can conceive of. Which is why men love the idea throughout the ages or why I say that thoughts came up initially with the idea of God. The gods or a God made it even easier to deal with that a God started all this. And so if you want to say where thoughts come from, well, God, well, he's responsible. The subconscious mind. My thoughts come from an area below the level of consciousness. And there's something else going on 
with which we cannot have direct access, so we don't really know yet, or I don't know yet, exactly what operation or combination of operations in the brain below the conscious level finally produce conscious thoughts. So I just sort of think about it as the subconscious mind, or as I said, the latest one is an area of pre-consciousness. Same letters, S-U-V, P-R-E. Takes no more typing ability, no more effort. Still three letters that you put in front of conscious. Neither one means any more than the last one. Not once you ask that dastardly question. Well, pre-conscious, a pre-conscious, a pre an area, a staging area that you call pre-consciousness where all this is worked out. That is most interesting. Hmm. Well, can I ask you this? Uh, where do those come from? I mean, what's, what's feeding the, the pre-conscious staging area? That's known as, what is it? BTDB, back to the drawing board. There's nothing there. There's nothing there of which we can conceive, of which the mind can conceive. And, of course, the mind with ordinary people shouldn't conceive it, not intended, doesn't want to conceive it. And of course, things are arranged so that even those who want to, it's hard as hell. But I can see almost everything that humans do. in my secondary world, in my secondary activity, that almost everything they do, I can see in one way, there's no end to it, I can see that it's an attempt for thoughts to give the impression that they have shored themselves up. They have put on at the moment a kind of guise of palpability, tangibility. Just in general, I can say that that's what all... The whole thing of just men palavering, just the constant yakking. And the yakking constantly, if you notice, is each person's yak is 99% about themselves. And it doesn't tell you anything to say, well, people are a bunch of egomaniacs, or to say, well, they're just asleep. I didn't tell you anything. Not useful. I say what it's doing is it gives thoughts at the moment they're doing it, they're losing their something to it. I mean, to be able to recall the past. So you, you, we normally think it's a person doing it, but here's a guy, he's saying, Arkansas. You mentioned Arkansas. Wait a minute, I was trying to think, I knew. I knew, and they hold their head and they go, I knew. And the person, apparently, is going back in their memory. They're obviously a three-dimensional person. There's depth in their head, there's depth in their memory bank, and they're going, they look off and stroke their chin. They go, Damn! I, I met a guy in Arkansas. I was going to tell you this. What was his name? And all of this apparently, there's something here that's three-dimensional. It has depth, breadth, width. He's, he's thinking back in his memory. It's talk. It's noise. Well, words and thoughts. And there's nothing behind any of it. And you go, well, he finally comes up to memory. He's in there searching around. Not only searching physically the memory areas of the brain, but it's like he's searching some sort of vague, but everyone assumes it's true, like he has a, a history behind him, sort of tagging along. You know, if we could see it as some sort of aura. Now, you don't have to be spooky or occultly inclined. 
Uh, if you catch what I'm saying, it's like every man has a life history trailing behind him. A 50-year-old man has 50 years worth of experience, ups, downs, good times, bad. But it's like this whole thing behind him, this whole treasure trove of experiences to call upon. It's a dream. There's nothing back there. That's one reason that people look so often look thoughtful and go, well, that's why people love to have their opinion asked. You can stop people, you know, all you got to do, you remember I had some of you try it one time with a clipboard and a pencil walking in a shopping mall. You can stop people and ask them just the damnedest questions and they'll answer you. Plus be thoughtful. You can ask them embarrassing questions, just all kinds of personal questions and people go, hmm. And the hmm, the whole thing is like, that they're some way moving back to behind them is this great 50-year-old, you understand, it's like them reproduced over and over behind them, going back into the past, uh, all this. And, of course, you do it to yourself. It's not just you trying to fool other people. It's thoughts in each person, in a sense, trying to fool themselves. That's why I tell you, you can't really, as far as I'm concerned, do yourself any more, I say harm, keep yourself more asleep than to be thinking about yourself. Of course, every time you think about yourself, you're thinking about what? Your experiences. They didn't, ha they didn't happen. Oh, they did. They're, right now, they're as real to me as when they happen. Well, you are an idiot. <laughs> no, you're not. You're asleep. You're ordinary. Your thoughts are so entangled in themselves. Notice the way I wrote it tonight. I finally decided to be more accurate. I didn't say that you were entangled. Your thoughts get so entangled, so engrossed in themselves that they believe they have some mass, some volume. And if you're not, there's no way out when you're there. There is nothing available, nothing, no one, nothing in you to say otherwise. And of course, once you begin to see it, it's kind of embarrassing because then you are faced with the additional idiocy or the higher level idiocy of having to Catch yourself sitting off and pondering the many deep ramifications of this. Aha. Uh -huh. So you are morons. You fell for that. Well, nobody laughed. Nobody woke up. To ponder the deep ramifications of thought having no real substantiality. Jesus, that is, as they used to say in the 60s, that is heavy. No, that's anything but heavy. <laughs> that concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com, where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest, or just leave us a message.